This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live at one. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by Speed of Sight, a motorsport charity providing track days and off-road driving experiences to blind and disabled people across the country. Please go to speedofsight.org to learn more. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Oh, it's going great. How about yourself? It's a bit early for us, isn't it? It is a little bit, and I'm feeling super insecure. Did you notice that in my intro there, I was giving it an extra 10% because I'm a little bit worried that you're going to like our guest's voice more than you like mine. I'm sorry, did you hear like a really high-pitched buzzing in your ear? No. Oh, I'm sorry, you were talking to me. Look, tell you what, you have been buzzing your proverbials off all week for our guest coming to chat to us. So why don't you tell us who is speaking to Mr. Apex podcast this week? All right. Well, our guest, as you were well aware, has a 30 year career in broadcasting. And starting in 1986, he accepted an offer from ESPN to host Formula One, IndyCars, motorcycles, rally, sports car coverage, a variety of sports, gymnastics, figure skating, track and field. He has literally done it all. And the Tour de France. And he moved to Speed Vision, Barrett Jackson, you name it. He has done it. He has literally seen it all. And I was going to say, you know, he has raised a generation of Americans into sports car and, and open wheel racing. But it's more than one generation at this point. And so our guest today, the legend that is Bob Varsha. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, although it is a bit sobering to think that I've raised more than one generation of viewers of motorsports, but I'll take it. Yeah, I always feel bad when I call like Joe Saywood a veteran or a stalwart. I think I'm not. I'm not calling you old. It's meant to be a compliment. Uh, but Bob, you know, I got to know of you through Matt Trumpets here's rabid fanboyism because obviously he's grown up with your commentary. Uh, but for us over in Britain. We suddenly got presented with the phenomenon of Bob Varsha when you came and did some Formula E. So suddenly your voice boomed across that transmission and we went, whoa, whoa, you're allowed to commentate like that? Because most of our guys, they give it a bit of Murray Walker. They explain what's going and then they they go into a high-pitched scream and something happens. But you, you just made it sound like a show. I thought, oh, my God, I'm about to watch a fantastic movie. Well, you know, that it, it's a bit of a controversial subject, actually. I'm often told that I don't use enough high-energy commentary. I mean, it's a pretty deliberate process, I must admit. Uh, but my thinking has always been it, it's best to be your natural self. And if I'm too ener- energetic, and especially if I'm artificially high-energy, you know, where am I going to go when something really important happens during the, 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 the race itself? So 
I never set foot in a classroom that taught broadcast techniques. Uh, it's, you know, what you see with me is what you get. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, it's gotten me this far. So I guess I'll stick with it. Yeah, and it's um, it is quite a surprise to a UK audience. And you've obviously worked in Formula E with Jack Nichols, who came and had a word with us a couple of weeks ago. Do you mind if I play you what he said about you? Oh, uh, not at all. I don't think. Talked a lot about what it's like to work with Bob. Oh yeah, sorry, I didn't even answer you. He's amazing, by the way. He's he's lovely and he's he's friendly and he's wonderful and he's and he's just got such a. When they first brought him in, I was a bit offended because you know, like I'm the commentator here. And then the first thing he does, I think it was in a, a race in Long Beach, and you get on the shores of the Pacific Ocean lies the long, and you just go, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> uh, yeah, no. And I think that's fair. Like there are no British commentators to do that. So I was just wondering if, like, if you could tell us a little bit about the mechanics of your commentary, because you seem to kind of sh- uh, set the show. You're almost like the host of the event, and and you're you're framing it in ways that we've only seen from like TV programs? Well, you know, I, when I slotted into the Formula E position, I know Jack felt awkward about it. It was kind of awkward for all of us, to be quite honest. I had stepped into the Long Beach race because Jack was unavailable because of other commitments, worked with Dario Franchitti, you know, had a great time. Everybody was pleased with the show. And I guess that got the people in charge talking about stability in the booth in terms of the number of people who were there and having differing points of view in the booth, because it only makes a show better, I think, when you have those sorts of things. So once it became clear that Jack is the lead commentator for the race, I'm basically there to be sort of a host, to set the scene, to identify the the key storylines of the weekend. And then basically, I turn it over to Jack and Dario, and off they go into the race. And I hardly plug a word in anywhere during the race because, you know, Jack is nonstop. He's high energy, as we've talked about. Um, he's, he's, he's a classic example of what I call the British school. A lot of information, a lot of talk going on during the race. In the United States, by contrast, I was brought up in a system in which less is more. You know, uh, get the few key things across. Don't tell people what they're looking at because they already know that. And lay out when possible to let people experience the sound of the environment as well as, as hear what you have to say about it. So it's, it's a matter of, of style. I, I suppose I blame Murray Walker, who did all those years doing such a terrific job as the one and only guy yeah. in the booth before James Hunt showed up. And um, I think that's what a lot of young British announcers think is the way they should do it. So it's, it's a technique. And to each their own. Everybody has their own favorites. Some will like somebody's accent or style or whatever more than someone else's and that's natural so we roll with it but i think we have a great booth right now with me jack and dario in formula e nikki shields down in the pits so you know i look forward to each and every race weekend with those guys because they're great blokes as well as being great announcers i'm a big fan of nikki shields but they've banned me from talking about it here um I, I may have overdone it. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. So they go to you quite often and you just, you seem to have this roll off the tongue summary. Like if we just joined you at that point, we would kind of, we know from you what was, had been going on previously in the race. Is that something that you kind of sit there and you furiously script it? Or do you just have this natural ability to build a story and a narrative? Well, again, I think it's just a matter of what I've been doing for the last 30, 35 years. That was the way... My mentors, great announcers in the United States, taught me to do it, that we will recap every now and then what viewers may have missed. Every audience for a broadcast is a new audience. You can't assume they know all about the race, all about the drivers, all about the technology, all about the qualifying process or whatever it may happen to be. So you have to find a way to cover this incredible spectrum of if you don't mind my wife and son leaving the apartment <laughs> behind me, it's all part of the show. Um, <clears throat> all right, off you go. Oh, kids are great, um, aren't they? My son takes every opportunity to undermine <clears throat> me as well. Right. But there are, you know, there, there are certain things you have to do for everybody in the audience, from the least sophisticated to the most sophisticated fan who's watching the show. And that's the high wire act, and that's part of the challenge and the fun. 
that's an interesting thing you just um, stepped on there because in the UK, the commentators always seem to go to a very educated audience and it's hard to drop in. And I've noticed that where, even when I watch like established US sports, they do bring it right down so that you can understand what's going on. Do you think that's cultural? Is that something the network set out? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. You know, there are a lot of people watching while the broadcast goes down and they make comments and give instruction or suggestions as we go along. And, you know, again, it's a, it's just a part of the cultural thing. It's just the way TV is done. All of us as announcers grew up watching other announcers and we all had our favorites and we all want to be like them. So we've adopted certain of their techniques and, um, you know, and that's how it works out. Yeah. And speaking of which, you know, you mentioned mentors and, and mm-hmm. obviously inspirations who were when you were growing up uh, like who do you who did you model yourself on who did you look towards uh, i I, if if i was going to do this this is how i'd like to do it well i should start by saying that becoming a television broadcaster wasn't always my goal and my dream and not something i prepared for religiously and and did broadcast to the radio in my bedroom at night and that sort of thing (coughs) excuse me uh, my career kind of came out of left field and just knocked me flat. I had an offer. I took it. And next thing I knew, I had work and I just kept going from there. I mentioned earlier, I never took a, a broadcasting class. I never got a degree in the subject. I just learned on the job and kept going. I've got to say, but, as somebody who's got to adulthood in probably the wrong profession and is now very late trying to become an international media icon, can you walk us through very slowly the steps where you <laughs> suddenly became an international media icon? It's quite sure. an interesting one. Yeah, I was just going about my business. I believe you were studying law. And um, in fact, mm-hmm. were you a practicing lawyer? I was, in fact, a practicing lawyer. And I had sort of a a previous athletic career as a long distance runner. I went to a couple of U.S. Olympic trials and a marathon and was involved with a, a large running club in my hometown of Atlanta. And uh, our main event every year was a, a big 10K foot race on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, they now get 65,000 people running through the streets of Atlanta on the 4th of July called the Peachtree Road Race. I organized that race for a couple of years and then sort of went back to practicing law and thought I was done with it. Out of the blue, I got a phone call from the Turner Broadcasting Company based in Atlanta under uh, broadcasting maverick Ted Turner. Um, And they asked me if I would help them broadcast the race. They wanted to do the race, never had been done before, but nobody there, none of the traditional broadcasters knew anything about the running sport and about Atlanta and about the event. Somewhere out of nowhere, they got my name. I went, did the broadcast with some some well-known figures from the local scene there. We shook hands, walked away, and I thought that was the end of it. But about six weeks later, uh, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to audition for a job on a semi-regular basis. So I thought, well, that might yeah. be fun. Next thing I know, I'm reading news blurbs in the commercial breaks in the overnight movies at about two in the morning, knowing I had to be up the next day to uh, to go into the law office and and push that stone up the hill for a while so yeah um, i'm feeling that pain at the moment bob yeah you've got to go into the office and go ah literally no one here is listening to me i need to get back to a microphone right well i i don't mean to cast dispersions on the practice of law that was fine (laughs) it's a great honorable profession for lots of people but it wasn't for me and if i'm honest with myself i wasn't happy but as luck would have it uh, it was a great time to be at Turner Broadcasting and CNN and all those places. So I put my hand in the air for other jobs and went from one place to another and uh, and finally rotated into an independent production company doing motorsports. So suddenly, at the age of 30, I'm suddenly a cub reporter going to all the sports car races across the United States and acting like an expert and learning as rapidly as I could, paddling yep. furiously under the water. Um through them, I met uh, folks from ESPN. They said, will you come and host our shows? That was another very small company at the time. From there, uh, CBS, ABC, I, I just had all of these opportunities open up, and I was very grateful for them. But it was all very random, very serendipitous, uh, as serendipitous as that first call to go do Formula One in the late 80s because Sir Jackie Stewart just didn't seem to want to do it anymore. Um, but along the way, you asked about mentors. I worked with a guy named Ken Squire who is a a Hall of Fame NASCAR announcer, Uh, Dave Despain, now retired, terrific motorcycle guru. Uh, And actually, at that first Formula One race, I found myself working with an expert commentator by the name of Chris Economaki. 
who at that point was was uh, an elderly gentleman who was an absolute icon in American sports broadcasting. We lost Chris several years ago, but he invented the position of the pit reporter in motorsports worldwide and was very good at it. Uh, so we spent that first Austrian Grand Prix with Chris schooling me and the rest of the world about Formula One as we sat through the first double red flag race in the history of F1. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, from there, off we go. And now here we are with Formula E and some uh, sports car things. I've, uh, I've covered a lot of different sports during my ESPN years. Uh, gymnastics, swimming, archery, water skiing, snow skiing, on and on and on. It's been a great ride, and, and I'm very grateful for all of it. The chat room is loving you being on, Bob. I can't read half the comments. Pretty much all of them are huge exclamation mark. Oh, my goodness. It's Bob Blinken Varsha. I know. Wow. People were saying about you saying it's very serendipitous. Uh, they're saying, no, it's not. It's your voice. Presumably you had that voice the whole time. Yes, I can take no credit for my voice. Uh, I just thank mom and dad. You know, that's it's what I had. So what it's I'm uh... like my hair. Oh, yes. Well, Matt, I think you want to compete on that front, don't you? I, I did, and and I think to put our guest in 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 this role. But when I knew you were coming on this show, I, I have to admit I may have gone to the most expensive stylist in New York, and I might literally spent my last penny on product. And I, and I thought maybe maybe I could just be that rookie upstart. But now I see you in person. I, I know I'm hopelessly overmatched in the hair department. But still, well, the question is follicularly speaking, do I have what it takes for a broadcast career? Oh, yeah. I think you definitely have a camera-ready haircut there. You know, the people ask me about it from time to time, and I say, look, you know, it's like clothing. It's wash and wear. I don't do anything to it. It's the product of a lot of $10 haircuts and no products to, oh. uh, to smooth it out. It's just, it is what it is. We've got oh, a few. All natural. I love it. We've got a few runners in our chat room as well, Bob, and they're wondering, what is your personal best? Because we've just had the London Marathon here in record heat. Oh, God, I just, I can't imagine. Um, well, I'll just blurt it out. My best marathon was uh, two hours, 15 minutes, 50 seconds. <clears throat> that was in the 1976 U.S. Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon. Um, you know, that was medieval times when it comes to marathoning when you've got guys like sir mo farah coming out and smashing the british national record in in basically his first attempt at the distance i mean the the times are just phenomenal now i think i'm still faster than the fastest woman in the world but it won't be long see the thing is though bob you're comparing yourself to mo farah so but i still think for the record that that's far too long to go running i think i can just about handle a few laps around the block but so yeah you said you've had this fantastic ride this career in entertainment but entertainment is notoriously fickle so you know i know from my point of view it's very very hard to give up an engineering career where you have you know a company pension you have that stability of the 50 hour week uh work but but obviously like a lot of your kind of work must be freelance at what point can you kind of say to yourself do you know what i actually i do this for a living and it's not going to go away i am bob bloody varsha well um one aspect of my career that i'm mildly disappointed in myself with is i have i've only had one agent in my career and that was many 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 years ago it was a very short-term relationship i think if i had had a professional agent to be quite honest with you, it, it might have helped me along the way. But to your point, at any given time, if I had all the work I could handle, I thought I'm doing just fine. And I'll just keep doing what I do. And hopefully the work will keep coming and, and it'll all be great. Um, I've had contracts with major networks. I am now completely freelance once again, which is both liberating and a little bit scary, um, especially when, you, uh, when you've just passed your 67th birthday. Ooh, and um, you don't know what the future holds. It's a it's an interesting time in TV sports right now, I must say. Budgets for production are down, sometimes drastically. A lot of money has been spent on rights fees for big sporting series around the world, including motorsports. That leaves very little left for production. So salaries are down. Um, networks like ESPN are, are eliminating people. There's a big shift into the digital realm. There's a lot to... Uh, a lot to tackle right now for uh, an individual broadcaster. So if this isn't too personal, is that why you've made the journey across 
from America to settle down in Europe because you're actually only one time zone out for us at the moment in France. In part, it is. Now, I realize that there are laws and regulations and, and, and even prejudice is too strong a word, but it's kind of like young American racing drivers trying to find their way in the crucible of European racing. Yes. It's kind of that way for a broadcaster, too. Many years ago, I spoke with, um, well, let's just say a, a prominent British racing announcer. Uh, and uh, we've had a, a long influx of broadcasters from around the world coming into American sports of all sorts, particularly in sports like football, meaning soccer, tennis, golf, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I asked this this particular individual, I said, you know what, you suppose a European network would ever hire an American broadcaster? And he said, not a chance in hell. It's just not going to happen. Now, that was many years ago. <clears throat> but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, it might be a fruitful thing for me to do to go over there and try. Um, uh, people have been very kind about my, uh, my reputation and my profile. It's probably not going to get a whole lot bigger. So, you know, I may as well try to leverage it right now and, um, and not reach the end of my career and say, I wish I had. So long answer to a no, short question is yes, I did come over here in part because I would like to try to break into the European motorsport scene as an announcer. Well, I love that because trumpets, you know, the only reason I have you on this live stream is because when people hear you in Britain, they think, oh, wow, that sounds like the telly. Uh, yes, <laughs> your, your children have told me this before. Oh, yeah, no, I forgot about that. Yeah, my, my children have actually said that to him on Skype. It's like from the television. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, that's occupational hazard. So part of what seems to be driving this, uh, and you talked a little bit about going to digital media and, and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and, and I know, you know, we tend to focus mostly on Formula One and F1 TV is coming. And I have to say, as someone who consumes the races, uh, I, I like the idea of being able to buy extra access and to see things that I wouldn't get on a straight television broadcast. And, but at the same time, it seems like, and, and this has happened to me in my industry in terms of music, mm -hmm. that it might also presage a very big contracting uh, of people who are in your position because you're going from having all these local crews to just having a single central crew that's going out to everybody. That's a, that's a great point. Now, two things can happen. On the face of it, you'd say, okay, more platforms for motorsports broadcasting or any sports broadcasting should mean more opportunity, but it doesn't necessarily because of that contraction you've talked about. We see it in the big news organizations and we're seeing it in sports, frankly, you know, if we can get one commentary feed and share it among all these platforms, we're going to save money and complexity, which is not so great for those of us who make our living doing this. But, um, Hopefully they will see the the value in having experience and and gravitas if if that's not too egotistical an approach and and diversity, men and women and folks with all sorts of perspectives and backgrounds and histories, mechanics in the booth. It wasn't that long ago the idea of having a mechanic in the booth was, you know, not even heard of. But my colleague for over a decade at uh, the Speed Channel was Steve Matchett, an ex Benetton mechanic who simply invented the role of the mechanic in the booth. And now you go to watch NASCAR, IndyCar in the United States, what have you. They have mechanics up in the booth all the time, ex-crew chiefs, people who bring that extra perspective that the that benefits the viewer. Yeah, look at Mark Priestley trumpets on Sky TV, for example. Classic example. Mark's terrific. So let, let's talk about this, because I know everybody is dying to hear stories of your coverage with David Hobbs and Steve Magic. But what I really want to know about is the very first time you met, was it like instant chemistry or was it uh, like you said with Nichols, was there like sort of a bit of awkward, let's kind of feel each other out here kind of phase? Um, no. Uh, and the reason is because uh, we were actually a four man booth at that time, because in addition to David Hobbs and Steve Matchett and myself, we had our colleague, Sam Posey, who is a, a terrific talent as both a writer and a broadcaster. So um, each of us had our role. You know, I, I was the, the host and, and, and race caller, uh, David, the ex-driver, Steve, the ex-mechanic, Sam, both a driver and a journalist. And it all just worked from the very beginning. I, I think the, the situation that Jack Nichols and I found ourselves in, he thought maybe I was there to do his job. 
and and I understood that entirely. But we have sort of carved out different niches for ourselves now, if you will, and it it works out well. And it always seems to work well when everybody in a team. This sounds simplistic, and I suppose it is, but when everybody in the team knows what their role is and sticks to that role, that's when the magic happens. You know, you're not competing with each other. You're not trying to show how much more you know than the other guy does about the same subject. And it, uh, when it works, it's, it's kismet. It's great fun. Are you listening, Spanners? No, I need to prove that I know at least something compared to the experts that I bring on this show. Um, but uh, walk us through that kind of period, because obviously I wasn't listening to American commentary then. What sort of era of Formula One were you were you in at that time? Oh, boy. When I started, Martin Brundle was still driving. Nigel Mansell was making his way. Hell, his I pre, know. Pre-winning his championship. He was at Williams at the time, though. Um Ayrton Senna was uh, in the Lotus back then. Um, so it was that generation. We had uh, PK and Senna and Prost and Mansell all on track at the same time. And it was it was a wonderful era. Of course, we think any era can be wonderful until, until those guys are no longer there. And then you realize what you missed. Uh, but I stayed with the sport. I actually did that one race in Austria in 87. Then in 88, ESPN went with a different lineup. And then in 89, they asked me to come back and jump back in with David Hobbs. So that's when David and I started full-time, 1989, on Easter Sunday in Rio de Janeiro, where it was 150,000 degrees out. And um, I actually won that race. Uh, it was a big crash. Gerhard Berger and Ayrton Senna took each other out. And uh, I think Nigel won, yeah, in his debut with Ferrari. Um, anyway, uh, great days. Um Oddly enough, David and I went along for a while, and then when we went to speed and we expanded the booth, it was because we had so much on our plate that David and I could not work together. We had the classic conflict between the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the Canadian Grand Prix. So the um, the, the the wiser heads at speed decided, well, we'll send David off to do the Formula One race, or excuse me, off to do Le Mans, because he oh. raced there 20 times. And we'll bring somebody in to work with Bob on the Canadian Grand Prix. And that's when Steve Matchett made his first appearance because our producer, a fellow named Frank Wilson, had read Steve's books, Life in the Fast Lane, and so on. So he knew that Steve um, had a big background in Formula One. And, you know, from then on, like a bunch of, you know, pound puppies, we all wound up in the same household and stayed there for over a decade. Okay, so now... Boy, do I have a million questions for you, but I'm going to ask the one that's next that I've actually written down, which is, I mean, the three of you were together for a pretty long time. Now, now I've been married a pretty long time. I, I think Spanners <laughs> is getting there. And I know that no matter how good your relationship is, you do kind of hit that point where the people around you will do that thing that sort of makes your eyelids start to twitch a little bit. <laughs> so I got to ask, was it like Matchett leaving empty Red Bulls around the studio or maybe Hobbs taking up two spots with his Jag? I mean, what was it? Come on. Well, um, I won't say there weren't moments where we sort of rubbed each other the wrong way, but I will say I worked basically 25 years straight with David Hobbs and just about every time we see each other these days, at some point he will say 25 years and never a crossword between us. And, and that's absolutely true. Oh, okay. Um, not because it just happened that way, but because we had enough respect for each other that we made sure that it happened that way. Um, you know, in, in organizations as they get larger, inevitably things are going to crop up. I don't think anybody had a particular habit, though. Hobbs tends to fall asleep a lot. Um, but, uh, I mean, David fell asleep on the starting grid for the Indianapolis 500, but I'll let you read his book in which he talks about that. It's called Habo and it's a great read. Um, uh, I mean, Sam was always brilliant. Um, being around Steve was always great fun. Um, but gosh, I, I've worked with so many people in that role before I got back to David, I spent years at ESPN doing formula one with, John Watson and Eddie Cheever and Derek Bell and this whole litany of uh, of ex-drivers that came and sat in the booth with me. Um, Derek Daly on that sad weekend in May of 94 when we lost Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna. That was forever burned into my memory. Um, yeah, lots of 
lots of great stories over the years, but really no hard times, no screaming matches, uh, no headsets being thrown on the table, none of that sort of thing, which I don't know, maybe we're just lucky. Dan L. Dan L. in the chat room there is asking, is this because Hobbs was eight scotches deep before the shows even started? (laughs) No, I can tell you uh, without a shadow of a doubt, David never uh, came into the uh, announce booth three sheets to the wind. Uh, We spent plenty of time together in that condition, but never in the announce booth. Uh, That was actually one of my questions, whether because. I will say, because I know Spanners was not treated to the just amazing commentary that I heard, because I, I was a cyclist. I raced bicycles. And when Tour uh-huh. de France came to ESPN2, that's when I first started seeing you and and and, and Hobbs and Matchett calling the races, because they would put on the, the highlights around the same time that the Formula One races were on. So naturally, I, I would catch that. But it was also an era where pretty much the whole race could be, oh, look, Schumacher won. And, 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 and not always, occasionally there was a Hakkinen in there or something, but Uh I was, I, it it came to be that just the ease you had with each other, that you would literally sit there and tell these stories that at first they didn't even seem to relate to the race, but they always would. You just had this ease. And I began to wonder, I'm like, I wonder if they're just like, uh, it's almost like just being down at the bar with your friends and just talking about the race that's on. And I began to wonder, like, wow, I wonder if they actually have maybe some adult beverages there and not just coffee. <laughs> You're saying it was just coffee. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just <laughs> coffee. And it's funny you mentioned that. It's a bunch of guys sitting around on the couch together, just enjoying the race and telling stories. People ask me, you know, what what, what are the best races to call? The exciting races are the easiest ones to call. I mean, they just spill out there uh, that that's it's it's just like falling out of bed the difficult races are the boring ones and well let's not kid ourselves there are boring races not every race is going to be compelling action-packed full of all sorts of drama it just doesn't happen that way so in any sport so i'll ask some advice from you then bob because i was i was commentating at the finals day at castle Coombe. Uh, one gt category came out with three competitors uh, all of him had about a 10 second pace difference and I just went we'd had an exciting day and I just suddenly went oh my lordy I think I ended up talking about planning for a future midlife crisis presumably you've never had to get to that point uh, do, do you have a plan in mind or do you go oh actually this is now just some space to be Bob you I think it 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 behooves you to think about those situations as a professional announcer in advance. What am I going to say here? What am I going to say? Yeah, I didn't do that. (laughs) And I I hate to bring it up, but one of those situations, and it came up in 94, is a fatality. Um, After the Senna weekend at ESPN, which is where we were calling the race from, we were asked to come on their masthead news show, uh, Sports Center to describe who Senna was and what his death meant to the sport and to the world of sport generally. And when we finished with that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One of their young announcers, young then, a fellow named Chris Fowler, said, um, you know, can we, can we go grab a bite of lunch? And I said, sure. So off we went. And throughout lunch, he kept peppering me with questions about what do you do when something like that happens in front of you? And my answer to him was, you just have to be ready. Um, there are certain rules that we follow about not speculating about someone's condition. Um, but if it's going to happen, you need to be ready to say something at the time. And uh, it's best to be prepared for that. And yeah, so that's what I do. Uh, it's actually a big responsibility because I was 13 at the time. So I'm just a young man watching the sport I love. And then suddenly for the second time in a weekend, two of these gladiators have died. And actually, I don't, I don't think I've actually sat and spoken about it since, but the guys who are calling that have a big responsibility to all those people who are feeling um, all those emotions. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, I don't think I'm ready given my midlife crisis performance at the Castle Coombe finals day. Um, But uh, do you know what? I've, you've, you've thrown me there a little bit. I think I've forgotten how much that affected me at the time. I think that just drives home uh, what an important job you guys have. So, you know, did you find yourself? Did you find yourself holding yourself together at that time? Well, there was a certain amount of that. I think we were all numb by the time Senna's accident took place because we'd already had, in addition to the Ratzenberger crash, um, Rubens Barrichello had thrown the Jordan up into the fence. He was not able to compete that weekend in a horrific crash. Um, when the race began, JJ Leto and Pedro Lamy came together and bits of, of wheels went up into the, the stand, horrifying everybody. Uh, Michele Alvarado had a crash in the pit lane that I recall hurt some mechanics. It was just such a black weekend in so many ways. You know, you just, as I say, you were just numb when it was all over on a, on a, on a more benign note, like your Castle Combe situation, we have the 2005 U S Grand Prix at Indianapolis where all the Michelin runners pulled off the racetrack yeah. And all of a sudden, we've got a six-car Grand Prix, and I can't even remember what we talked about for well, that. Uh, for for that, have, if you've ever watched long-form cricket in Britain, where they take five days to play the game, uh, we have a, a, a program called Test Match Special, where they notoriously talk about the state of the London buses, plant pots in the neighbouring <laughs> gardens. Um, but from, from obviously from the tragic to the benign like that, you must have a standout, monster, exciting F1 race where you went, this is it, I am alive, this is common. Wow, which one would I pick? Um, Okay, put it this way. When you eventually release a book, which tell me there's a book coming out at some point. (laughs) It's got to be a book. What what are the top three then in that that case? What makes the cut? Um, I think Nigel's championship, although it was one with races yet to go, I think that imperious season in that amazing Williams-Renault race car – was a highlight red um, five the true red five i think michael schumacher's first championship for ferrari um had some amazing races his gosh i remember michael at the french grand prix at madney Cour. it wasn't his first championship but i remember <clears throat> him driving and ross braun came on the radio and said, uh, oh, Michael, you know, we, we, we can win this race, but I know you're going as quick as you can, but we need a, a second a lap faster from here to the end. And Michael is, Psh, okay. And I, off he goes. He drives this incredible four pit stop race and wins. I can't remember what year that was, uh, but that was a, an absolutely spectacular performance by him. My most emotional moment in a, in a positive way on a race broadcast was actually Le Mans the year Jaguar finally broke through. Uh, when was that? Um, 90. Um, I mean, we all knew Le Mans was always considered a British race on French soil. Tom Walkinshaw's Jaguars had come and lost and come and lost. And they always painted on the inside of the garages. We will be back. And certainly they did come back and then they beat Porsche and came across the line three wide, and we were getting word that all of these Brits were coming across the, the channel to get <laughs> to Lamar in time to see this happen. And at the end of the race, the place was absolutely heaving with people, and, and confetti's flying through the air, and flags are flying, 
and people are singing, and the, the, the British crowd was so happy. I could barely make myself heard over the microphone, and that's as close as I've ever come to weeping on the air, was sensing that emotion, that God save the Queen, we did it, <laughs> that moment. That That's probably my favorite moment of all time in of, motorsports. Of course, you're lying. All the British people simply <clears throat> sit, sat there with a stiff upper lip and uh, applauded politely uh, as that all happened. Um, look, I came across when we were, uh, I was looking at Bob Varsha on the internet, as we tend to do before you have somebody on your show. And I, I came across Safe is Fast, where you just sat there and spent time giving long answers to young drivers giving them advice mm-hmm. on their career. I mean, that's an amazing thing. That must be quite time-consuming just to sit and get, you know, some random question from a 14-year-old and then type out a long bit of advice about how to get on in their career. I mean, that must be very rewarding, but also teenagers <laughs> are very uh, annoying. Entirely different from a mid-30s-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am, I am happy to do it, I tell you. The Safest Pass program, which was organized by the Road Racing Drivers Club of the United States, which is a bit like the British Racing Drivers Club, except there's Brits in both clubs. I don't think there's Americans in the BRDC, but be that as it may, they put money and sponsorship into this collection of videos on every subject related to racing so that people can go and and hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Uh, And answering the questions of kids, yeah, they're a lot of the same ones over and over again, but, you know, that's life. That's that's a kid's curiosity, and and I'm happy to... uh, but, but the, to respond the, any way I can. Some of the questions there that really stuck out for me are how to deal with the media, because obviously you're the media and you've got in drivers' right. faces quite a lot. And I, we, we have people like Kimi Raikkonen. I think people either love the fact that he's himself or they go, hang on a minute, you're on telly, mate. Cheer up. Uh, you know, how, how do you find these guys who are at the top <clears> of the sport <throat> that is essentially entertainment? Well, absolutely. And that's why I was happy to answer those questions for those kids, because... You know, they need to know that what they're doing as a driver is not the only game in town, that all these other people are working around them, whether they be journalists or mechanics or what have you. And you have to remember them as well. And as they say, the rising tide raises all boats. If we're going to make motorsports more popular, we need to reach out to people. We need drivers who are willing to engage. You can't go sit in the motorhome and just you know, tell the press, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to drive and you talk about it. And, and that's all. <laughs> Did you, know, you see the podium do. for the Chinese Grand Prix with the two Finnish lads, second and third? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Yeah, you that know, was you'll, you'll have those sorts of things. Oh, I just thought of an answer to your question about probably the greatest Formula One race that I could recall, certainly could recall commenting on was the 2008 Brazilian Grand Prix. Yes. When lovely little Felipe Massa was the world champion for Ferrari for as long as it took for Lewis Hamilton to get from the last corner to start finish. No, um, he wasn't. The camera flashed on on his father, Antonio. <laughs> oh, I garage. know. That, that I felt so, bad about. <laughs> I did, too. But I was so happy that we actually pretty much nailed everything that was happening in that race. We noticed that. Timo Glock had stayed out on slicks as the rain was was building and that he was slowing down and getting past. And the, the cameras cut to him, having already shown Massa coming across the line and Ferrari's garage going crazy. They cut back to the track. Lewis Hamilton is going by Timo Glock as they climb the hill and come up to the finish. Cut back to the garage. The team is telling um, Felipe's dad that Hamilton is now in sixth place. The title has gone back over to the McLaren side. Hamilton comes across the line. I mean, that was, we were, we were all just drenched in sweat and, and exhausted. I, at the say, I saw that happen live with you calling it. And it's mm-hmm. literally the reason that I'm sat here today. <laughs> that, 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 because of the nature of my life, I had followed formula one and then, I went out of town, got married, moved around, and just happened to come across it again. Um, I think actually on Top Gear, they interviewed Lewis Hamilton in 2007. I was like, oh, yeah, Formula One. I used to watch that. I, <laughs> I enjoyed that. And I just, on Speed Channel, came across a, maybe even a rebroadcast. And I was like, oh, it's very exciting. I should watch this. And bang, there it all was. And that's what got me back into watching the sport. So, yeah, you absolutely nailed it as far as I'm concerned. It was 
Yeah, it was a great weekend. Bob, you have been so generous with your time. Thank you for taking this Tuesday evening to come and talk to us. But we do have one final question for you. Matt's going absolutely nuts. What is it, Matt? I have 500 more questions for him, but I <laughs> he only does not have 500 more questions worth of time to spend with us. Go ahead. You want to talk cycling? I would love to. No! You don't know how hard I work to stop this. I I would love to know, like, which is your favorite motorsport? What's your favorite racetrack? I have all these questions that I have to ask. Tell you what, then. Let's finish with a quick fire. Do quick fire things I want to know about Bob. Okay. All right. Hang on. Um, let Let me scroll down to where I had all of these. All of these questions. In that case, I get to go first. Broadcast, broadcast dream team. Wow. What are we calling? What sport? Motorsport. Oh, for motorsport. Can I include myself or do I have to come up with others? No, no. You're, you're, the, you're the anchor oh. and you're picking your okay. team for the whole weekend. How many seats am I filling? As many as you feel is appropriate. Okay. Well, um, you know, I would honestly go with that, uh, that four-man booth we had in the late 90s at Speed with myself, David Hobbs, Steve Matchett, and Sam Posey. Beautiful. Favorite Formula One era? The V10s. The, uh, yeah, those three or four years there with the V10 engines that made such an incredible sound. Yeah, every, everybody loves to go. They still use that sound on current generation commercials sometimes. Grand Prix sure. driver may be looking yeah. at you. Um, favorite track for Formula One? Um, boy, oh boy. Your favorite, favorite. Just Sil- like Silverstone. Say Silverstone. We've got a lot of British it's listeners. Silverstone. <laughs> you know, I would say Silverstone, except I need more elevation change. So I will say, and for the same reason, I won't say Monza. I will say Spa Frankershaw. And, and you know Excellent. what, Silverstone? Parking. It's not hard. <clears throat> no, oh, no. Okay. Uh, we're getting a little a far afield now for Spanner States. Daytona or Le Mans? Although I think I already know the answer. Oh, Le Mans. Daytona that, is no a circle. No disrespect to the Rolex at Daytona. Le Mans. Le Mans is, is, is probably my favorite motorsport event in the world. It's just amazing. I, I, I've always, always, uh, when we were in Paris last, we took the day, day trip to Chartres. And I got off the train and I saw the sign that said Le Mans, 30 kilometers. And I was like, ah, it's so <laughs> close. I really want to go. All right. So any advice for fans who might be going for the first time? I usually recommend that people go with a recognized tour organizer because they know where seats you need to be in and where you need to stay and all that sort of thing. Um, But if you insist on going by yourself and you don't want to camp next to your car out there in some farmer's backyard, the way a lot of people do, uh, certainly down by Arnage, uh, I would say bring your walking shoes, um, see the museum, get a paddock pass. Uh, and walk around as much as you can and uh, don't go home at night plan to stay at the racetrack for the entire 24 hours Uh, and if you can get around the circuit you know the law i always say about road racing its biggest appeal to me is because the racetrack makes me feel like i'm going somewhere and at Lamar, you have that from the bright lights of the pit area and the bugatti circuit on the property of the aco you go off into the countryside in this complete darkness down to Mulsanne, down to Mulsanne Corner, back through Indianapolis, back through Arnage, and then back to civilization once again. So you really get the feeling you're going somewhere at Le Mans. Massive lap, always dramatic, um, always takes everything you can throw at it, and, uh, and never fails to produce at least one memorable moment. One from the chat room, Prost or Senna? Uh, Senna. And actually, I just wonder, like, from the modern era, who's the driver you gun for? You're not commentating on F1 right now, so surely you're allowed to state a favorite. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I admire all these guys, but I will say right now my favorite is probably Daniel Ricciardo. He really seems like what you might call a, you know, a, a proper bloke. Not too <laughs> full of himself. He's certainly talented. Uh, he's at a critical moment in his career. I mean, Daniel, the, the, the interesting stat about Daniel is that of his, what, seven race victories now, he has never won from the front row of the grid. He has always come from deeper on the grid than the, the first couple of rows. Um, and as I say, he just seems like a good bloke, and um, I'll pick him for right now. Well, at least you know if he's going to win the race, he's going to enjoy it. 
Absolutely. I don't know about I don't know about the shoey business, but no, that's okay. gross, and he should that's quit nuts. immediately. That's completely insane and unsanitary. Cycling is Bob Roll absolutely positively as nuts as I want him to be. And I have read his book, and I I actually met Phil Anderson in the early '90s riding around Central Park. Listeners, uh-huh. I'm so sorry. Yep, Bob Key is just what you see. Uh-huh. He is a, he's a yes. wonderful guy. Um, he is mm-hmm. a font of information. He has absolutely no filter, which is the the way I like uh, the kind of commentator I like to work with. Um, that experience uh, covering the Tour de France was was just one of the exceptional periods of my career. It's it's such an amazing event. See the yeah, chat room's and, leading and, us astray. Matt, you're listening to Dan yeah. in the chat room. He's saying trumpets. Ask him cycling questions. Don't worry about what Spanners wants. Mark Greenow saying classic, <laughs> the Colombo maneuver. Thank them for their time and then keep asking them questions. We've definitely exceeded what we agreed here. And I don't want to annoy you, Mr. Varsha. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Matt, what? Come, You can't keep the man here forever. He looks like he, looks like he wants to talk about cycling a little bit more. He doesn't. You're, you are now keeping him here against his will. Uh, Mr. Varsha, now that you're in Europe and I really really do hope you manage to break into the European scene like you're planning to. If you ever fancy talking about Formula One where the big media boys aren't listening, do feel free to drop in on Missed Apex podcast. Is there anywhere anyone can find you online and follow your progress? I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram, though not as much. I'm on Facebook. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find out there. At Bob Varsha. Um, I don't even know all my sign-ins. I just leave the files open all the time. So I'm on there. You can find me. Search and you'll find me. Absolute legend. And you're going to be with Formula E for the rest of the season? I will indeed. We've got Paris coming up. And um, it's going to be a spectacular race. A new event in Zurich. On to New York. Nobody knows who's going to win the championship. And, of course, the new generation car, the full race battery, and everything coming in season five. So it's a great time to be working in Formula E. I tell you what, I know you're coming to New York. I'm certain you're going to be busy and I'm going to be highly inappropriate. If you have the time, it would be uh-huh. my utter pleasure to buy you the cocktail of your choice at my favorite bar. Uh, challenge accepted. Let's stay in touch. Don. Bob Varsha, you're a legend. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, I would certainly say you've made Mr. Trumpet's day there. The um, the chat room's been going absolutely nuts the entire time we've been speaking to you. My phone has been buzzing away. And, Steve, you're going to have to edit this out. And sorry, this isn't safe for work. But the amount of messages I've got that have gone, What? Bob Barsha? Question mark, explanation mark. People are really, really excited. I think you might be more popular in Europe than you think. I think people wow. catch little glimpses of you. Obviously, we don't have you on a main feed. But when they see you, they remember you. Well, that's that's gracious. I'm glad people have been very kind. Thank you very much. I will catch you on the Internet. Thank you, Bob. OK, cheers. Well, that wasn't creepy at all, was it, Matt? Oh, Bob, can I buy you a cocktail? Can I be your best friend? Can I stroke your hair? Can I hold you and then not let go at the appropriate time, but sniff a little bit like like I'm inhaling your hair? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't see him. I don't see that being a problem, my friend. <laughs> You're just jealous because I am jealous. I'm hanging with my legend. It's never occurred to me. By the way, this is part of the audio, Matt, in case you're going to get extra creepy. Um, but it's never occurred to me to just go, so, uh, yeah, you want to go for a beer? You know, like, you know, Jack Nichols is there talking about, you know, his sometimes work friend, Jolian Palmer. And I'm like, I have your WhatsApp number. We WhatsApp about podcasts. Maybe I could ask you out for a beer to be my best friend. But I decided that would be super creepy on a national podcast. Uh, well, I feel differently about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the least bit. I'm not the least bit concerned because he's coming to my backyard, and I've already met multiple people uh, uh, that I've known online through the through through our community. And they're like, "Oh, coming to New York, grab a beer or whatever." Well, sure, why not? He's and coming to New York, grab a beer. I don't see how that's different. I'll that's a good honest. point, actually. We have done that with listeners and in our Slack group when yep. they've said, "Oh, we'll go for a pint in Mayfair." And I suppose I've met I've met Joe and clinked glasses with him so i mean, I mean not- fair enough i we did talk for the better part of an hour before i actually said oh hey since you're going to be in new york i'd love to take you to my favorite bar yeah about that it was a 30 minute interview and you knew that you knew no, that going I, in oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry i thought we had 61 megabytes was, <laughs> I, was I wrong about that no but i just 
I, when you say to the guests, oh, 30 minutes, I try well, to keep to that yeah. so that they'll come back on another time. Anyway, Matt, we've got a Grand Prix in Baku coming up and we've got mm. a few minutes to fill of the airways. And I just want to say I am hoping that Lewis Hamilton is going to get his act together. Not just because I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan, but that surely the championship needs him to to get his, his act together. Because otherwise, we're sort of feeling like Ferrari might might run away with it if Valtteri Bottas is the guy that's bringing the Mercedes challenge. I tell you what, I don't think Lewis needs to get his act together because I I don't even think Baku is necessarily the kind of circuit that is his favorite thing in the world. I mean, was it not Bottas last year who was um, who was leading the charge for Mercedes or no, maybe it was Hamilton. He's he's had an interesting history with that track. Um, But I think the people who really need to bring it are Mercedes. You know, they have have had a little bit. I mean, Australia, it was fraught for them. No doubt that that should have been that should have been one in the victory column for him. Baku, they just weren't on it and they were having clear not Baku, um, Bahrain. These both start with a B. It could happen to anybody. I swear. Um, Bahrain, they just didn't quite seem to be on it. And China, uh, from a weather point of view, was an utter disaster for them. Their car was outside of its conditions and they could not get on top of the setup to save their lives uh so it will be interesting to see what they've done in the interim to to sort out their diva that's apparently not any longer a diva um but i was just going to run through the fact that in baku last year we had so many people that could have won that race and that's what made it spectacular Uh, obviously lance stroll ended up finishing third didn't he overtaken by uh bottas right at the end i'm actually struggling to remember who won was it ricciardo uh was it i believe it was i don't know it doesn't matter because i was already thinking about the 99 european grand prix that we just got finished reviewing and talk again you know, it's interesting comparison because another race where literally so many people, quote unquote, could have won it. And it, and it's nice to see that even in this modern era, that that races can still be that unpredictable. Right. And I think it's harder for them, don't you? Because back then you didn't have the same amount of software. You didn't have the algorithms running off site and the banks of engineers getting telemetry off and i feel like a lot of that predictive software and a lot of the software engineering that's gone into the pit wall side of it so i don't know then predictions i guess it's hard to look past ferrari at the moment isn't it just because they've kind of got everything together they do but you know uh baku if i'm remembering correctly might not be the worst place for red bull there are some like low speed corners I'd have to look at the track again and 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 see what it says. There there might be enough um, might be enough corners that that Red Bull might be more in the mix. Uh, the, I mean, they were in the mix in China because they got the extra pit stop. But generally speaking, you're going to assume that anything with a Renault and a Honda plus a very very long straight or not a lot of braking opportunities is going to be at a pretty severe disadvantage to a Mercedes or a Ferrari at this point. Okay, let's talk about your 1999 <laughs> European Grand Prix review because there was a lot of comments. And to be fair, most of the comments were it was fantastic to cover that kind of old-style race. And I think we'll definitely do it again. Somebody said yeah. um, 2011 Canadian Grand Prix. And that, I instantly went, ooh, we could do like a full race review, I think, of that. Um, and that would be a lot of fun. But then we got like an angry, was it an email or was it on Twitter? It went, um, I had to stop watching after 10 minutes because of all the factual inaccuracies. Actually, the Supertech engine was, in fact, a Renault rebadged engine with less power specifications. You go, well, do you know what, Matt? I'm going to skip the court martial on this occasion. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Although, in Anil's defense, it was an older specification of a Renault engine. So it's kind of like saying, well, why wasn't Sauber competitive with a ferrari engine well it was last year's ferrari engine and i think that was the point he was making and you know but it's look i am not i don't mind being corrected i don't mind being given additional facts but when you only have an hour or 63 minutes to provide the entire historical context for a race that had that literally that much happen in it well you know you may not get everything exactly perfect but the point is to get the idea across and to get people to go back and learn some history so that they appreciate what they're seeing now you know there's so much history in the sport 
Um, but the sport rarely, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll tangentially mention it and boy, talking about Bob Varsha talking about that, they were genius and taught they, they would see something like, Oh, look, you know, that the Steve Matchett who loved to draw on the screens would circle something like, Oh, look, I think this bolt is coming off this. And the next thing, you know, David Hobbs is talking about a race from 20 years ago where some guy he knew had that exact same thing happen. And then they'd be off for 20 minutes talking about this situation, but you'd learn so much about the history of the sport while literally nothing exciting was happen- happening on the screen. And this is where I think Jack Nichols was wrong, and I'm a big fan of Jack Nichols, when he said about the point of covering the practice sessions. And actually, I imagine as a commentator, that's very difficult. But actually, if you listen to him and other commentators covering those practice sessions, what you get is their more kind of in-depth opinions about the race. They're not just calling what they see. They're going, oh, actually, this situation is like, do you remember that from seven years ago? Do you remember this from six years ago? And it just builds a context. And even your 1999 European Grand Prix is part of the fabric and the context and the makeup of this modern F1 story. It's all related. People tend to treat races and seasons in isolation, but... It's actually, you know, it's the huge long game of watching Formula One over a lifetime and over decades that makes it such a rich tapestry. That's why even though there might be better racing in other series, we stick to the sport we love and the story that we love. That's our favourite soap opera. You know, even if a new, like, even if Hollyoaks comes on the block and you go, well, that's exciting, you still want to watch a bit of Dynasty because you know about JR. You know what JR did and you know how that's affected everyone. Yeah, and, and and you talk about lineage, and, and one of the things we talk about in the show was, well, this team become this team, this this person bought this team, this team went, but you begin to see that there is this longer line of descent amongst the teams, and then and then then like you know uh, Jordan becoming Spiker becoming Force India, they have like this weird midfield destroying DNA just baked into their culture, and it has survived. From at least from 99 until now and 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 the further back you go the more you find that 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 there's not it for all that everything is new in formula one talk to summers almost nothing is new in formula one well related to that and since you bring up summers that's very apt because next tuesday we're going to have matthew summerfield summers f1 uh, uh, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com which is kind of a big deal. We don't really make a big enough deal of the fact that our, our, te- <laughs> our tech guy is like one of the main tech authors and editors on a massive F1 motorsport platform. Um, actually, Summers, we don't give him enough credit either because he's got like 20,000 Twitter followers. He's always been really generous retweeting us, plugging us, getting us in contact with people. And he was with us nearly from day one. And we kind of treat him for granted. I just sit here and go, oh no, and do stupid impressions of him. But the bloke is a motorsport media legend. I bet in 10 years, he is the number one tech guy in F1 media. I I think he might very well be. And I certainly hope he certainly deserves it. I don't know anyone who works harder at what he does than Summers. But, and he and, and and he's so generous with his knowledge too, right? Yeah, he is. But we're just so complacent about him because we're like, I nearly forgot to mention that he was going to be on the show next Tuesday because he's being joined by ex Lotus Chief Matthew Carter, and that's the thing I was going to tell people. I was like, oh no, Summers is there as well. He's also kind of a big deal. Um, but they're going to be talking about. Um, some of the technical regulations when Matthew Carter was uh, team boss and his interactions with scrutineering. Because obviously we talk about these technological challenges and how much do the teams push and are they trying to get away with it? Uh, we're going to talk about how they cheated. Well, and we're not, we're, we're not going to lie about it. We're going to talk about exactly how they cheated and what they really thought cheating was compared to the regulations. That's what we're going to have a very in-depth discussion of. I, and who Carter thinks was beyond the pale. Well, I've uh, obviously been speaking to Matthew Carter over WhatsApp and stuff since he's been on the show. Real nice bloke. But recently I dumped him in a WhatsApp chat with yourself and Summers and the topics that you guys were talking about was explosive. Like I'd be sitting at work and I'd go, oh, ooh. I mean, and then my first question, my my question is, can can we talk about that? Oh, God, no. Ah, right. Okay, okay. Can we talk about that one? Yeah, we can. Woohoo, we can talk about that next Tuesday. Oh, it's going to be epic. Oh, what a, what a great time to be alive in podcasting. 
<laughs> yeah, it will be good. And between now and then, we actually have a race review to do as well. Yeah, we do. We do have a race review to do. And uh, for the chat room, it's going to be normal time next week. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, should be. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the reason that this stream was earlier was because originally we were going to do the Carter and Summer show straight after this. But thank goodness we didn't. That would have been a very difficult task. We decided it was far too much to do in one day. So we postponed the Carter and uh, Summer's chat till next week. But make sure you do join us for that. Follow me at Spanners Ready. The show at Mist Apex F1 and Matt at MattPT55, all on the Twitters. Until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Mist Apex. Oh man, it's so horrible listening to my own voice after we've had Bob Barsh on. This is Mist Apex. Oh. This was Missed Apex Podcast. This was Missed Apex Podcast. I, I, you can't even. It's impossible. Nobody can sound that good in real life, but yet he manages. Well, he said, oh, I, I'm really sorry. I've just got this like normal headset mic thing. And I was like, oh, it's not going to get across like how cool he sounds. Nope. Didn't stop nope. it at all. Not at all. Not at all. And and the thing is, like, I know, I know we had the rest of the show, but I swear if we if, if we let him, he'd have just. He'd still be telling us stories. That's not what you do, though, when we've got a guest, Matt. You don't do that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.